Uh, we are in a series right now through um, a book, or through uh, a series called The God-Centered Life, where we look at the idea of who God is and how that changes us in a personal way, how that impacts our day-to-day life. Sometimes that uh, theology or ideas about God can be so lofty and so high up. I mean, they're big, right? Like the Christian God is a massive, um, infinite, almost incomprehensible being, but but that God has also communicated to us some of his attributes uh, very clearly in, in scripture and in the world and in, in, um, in his son in particular. And so we grab hold of these and begin to make sure and understand what does it mean for us to live a God-centered life, a life that is uh, rooted in who God is. We've looked at uh, four, we're looking at four G's that, that mark our attributes or characteristics of God. He's great, he's glorious, he's good, and he's gracious. And we've already looked at great and glorious. Today we're looking at good. God is good. Um, and, but before we get into that, I'd love for us to just take a few moments and pray. So if you join me. God, it's a, it's a lofty thing to reflect on who you are and to, um, Lord, to consider a being that we, <laughs> we cannot fully comprehend. Um, Lord, you are... You are a mystery to us apart from what you have revealed. God, as we look at your characteristics, as we reflect on uh, who you are, Lord, we pray that this isn't just some intellectual pursuit, a gain of knowledge, but that we would encounter you personally, the living God, who isn't just transcendent and far off, but who is also near and kind and compassionate and merciful. We have sung about you this morning, we have prayed, we have read, uh, read together scripture and uh, liturgies, Lord, we, we pray that you would um, now just reveal yourself. Um, God, may these not just be exercises or ideas, but reality. Uh, Spirit, we invite you to come in our presence, move in us personally, move among us corporately, Lord, and let us see Jesus more clearly. We pray this in your great name, amen. So the central idea for today, there's been a central idea for each of these, and, and while, um, well, let's say, the, the, the central idea is God is good, so I don't need to live for the approval of others. God is good, so I don't live, need to live for the approval of others. And what we've done with these is, uh, the first week was God is great, so I don't have to be in control. So if you struggle with worry and fear and anxiety uh, at all, I encourage you, if you weren't here that week, go back and, and watch that uh, on our Vimeo page or on our Facebook page, um, and, and that message addressed that. But I hope you understand, saying God is great, therefore I don't have to live in fear, is not the only implication of God is great, right? <laughs> God is great, there are huge implications about everything related to that. But one implication was, very clearly from Scripture, we don't need to live in anxiety, we don't need to live in fear. And so the next week we looked at God is glorious, therefore I don't need to seek satisfaction in other places. I don't need to live for pleasure or comfort. Um, I can find my deepest satisfaction and pleasure in God and then be able to enjoy things in a right way. Um, and today we're looking at the idea that God is good That's not, and, and that I don't need to seek approval from other people. That's not the only implication that God is good, but it, is, it very much plays into our reality of living and connecting with other people. One of the challenges to seeing God and experiencing God's goodness is 
uh, being freed from the need for approval of others. Uh, that is very difficult in our modern culture where many people uh, don't have deep connections and relationships with other people that are based on uh, just a sort of a, a sacrificial, humble love towards each other. Uh, we live in what uh, John Mark Comer described as a culture that's marked by transactional, transactional individualism. We are so isolated. We, by the way, the, the stats may be bearing out. We are becoming the loneliest society in the history of the world. Like this is, this is uh, John, uh, sorry, Robert Putnam, who wrote, um, was a Harvard sociologist, wrote the book Bowling Alone 23 years ago about the breaking apart of community and the sense of, of belonging, the rise of how individualism's finally bearing its fruit. We planted those seeds a long time ago that the, it's no longer about family. It's no longer about your connection to other people. It is about you. You are the center. And we have driven this individualism so far that we are now bearing the fruit of it. And the fruit of that is isolation. People feel isolated and disconnected. His recent research shows that 40% of Americans have one to zero confidants, people that they can process life with, not just like talking about sports. We all have people like that, hopefully, that you can just talk to about superficial things. If you don't, you are particularly lonely, but most of us have people we can talk to about superficial things. It's the deep struggles, the deep realities, our deep insecurities and weaknesses, and actually having someone we can talk to about that. We are getting to a point where nearly half of Americans may not even have one person they can do that with. This is individualism uh, bearing fruit. And because of that, our relationships are transactional. Even if you have friends, many of them are transactional relationships. We're, um, we, we, uh, and it can be as simple as the checkout clerk at Trader Joe's or the person who works in the office next to you. You have a, I, I provide this input, you provide that input, and we will remain in this relationship until one input stops or changes, and then I will move on to someone else, and I will provide input for them, and they will provide input for me, and we will be... <laughs> Do you see how sad we've become? There's no long-term commitments. There's no sense of like, I actually want what's best for you as a whole person, not just related to what you can do for me for my job or what you can do for me uh, in my personal life. And so because of that, we often, we, we are tempted uh, to look for affirmation, value, and um, sort of even people declaring our worth through um, seeking their approval. So in our own weird way, because we don't have these deep and meaningful relationships, we'll latch hold of someone we think is valuable, influential, or, or important in life. And it could be as, as simple as that. You just have one friend who's super popular. They, they're friends with everybody, right? Like everybody loves them, and they're super funny or whatever, and you're like, oh, I so want them to like me. And so we begin to live for that, and we begin to seek their approval. Any Enneagram twos and threes out there? You are, this is you. Like, this is as natural as breathing for Enneagram twos and threes. Living for other people's approval. It's, if you are an unhealthy two or three, you literally get up in the morning thinking about how other people could somehow need you or approve you or affirm you. Um, the rest of us struggle with it as well. It's just not the air we breathe in the same way. Um, but we're all tempted to seek approval from other people. And what we're doing, them, doing with that person, listen, is we're saying, you be good. You be my good. My good in life is that you would affirm me, that you would value me, 
that you would approve of me. And that's a dangerous place to live. In essence, we're asking people to give us our worth. And we know that instinctively, we know instinctively that you don't get given that, right? That you earn it. In our world, no one just gives you approval. Maybe your mom and dad, but for some of you, not even your mom and dad. Approval is not given in this world, it's earned. And so what do we do? We put ourselves to work to earn that approval from other people so that we can feel secure, we can feel loved, we can feel valuable. There's a religious version as well, by the way. Despite what you might think, religion is not on the decline in the world. Not even remotely close to being on the decline. In fact, Christianity is not even on the decline. Christianity is growing faster than it's ever grown. Just not in the West. It's blowing up all over the world. And other religions are growing as well. There's no scenario right now where we are going to reach a universal, worldwide, secular utopia. The the stats do not bear that out. (laughs) And and what religion does for us, let me explain to you, if, if I were to line up all the world religions here, it would look like this. There is a God or ultimate reality in the universe. You will do X, Y, and Z. It could be praying, giving a certain amount of money regularly. It could be going and serving as a missionary for two years. It could be uh, how many times you pray each day. It can be making a, uh, a trip to a certain location. It can be what you eat. All of these things. You do these things. This is your, your, your um, contribution, and you earn approval or unity with the essence of the universe. That, that's the reality. What I try to help people to understand, and I don't think people in our culture understand at all, is that that is the opposite of Christianity. Christianity, the gospel, comes to us and says, you don't earn God's approval, you are given God's approval. Which means he's good. Because we're not. <laughs> right? Because when we all, when we get down to it, we already like, we read a liturgy about it and that was like heavy, right? I don't know if anybody else was thinking, man, yep. Oof. As you were, we were reading that together, it's heavy, but, but it's reality for all of us that we have this deep innate sense of, of needing to be made right with our creator. And we can do that through killing ourselves at work and justifying ourselves that way. And we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, and, or this week, we are seeking to justify ourselves by the number of people who approve us or by the specific types of people that approve us and affirm us. But Christianity says God actually is the one who has chosen to approve of us and has made the means of that through his son. So that now there is no earning, there's no contribution to receive God's goodness to us. We receive it as a gift of love. The anti-gospel says God loves me because I am good or do good or tried to do good. Where the gospel is, God is good, so he loves you. God is good, so I don't need to live for the approval of others. To, to unpack this, I want us to look at why is God good? And that's a good question to ask. Uh, why aren't we experiencing that goodness? And what does it look like to actually live in that goodness? So let's talk about why is God good? If you grew up in church, complete this phrase with me. God is good all, and all the time. That's right. And that's a wonderful affirmation. 
and it means absolutely nothing without any substance behind it, right? Like, what does it actually mean that God is good all the time? I mean, it's good. I, I love it. It's a great saying. But without any substance behind it of knowing what that actually means, it's just a platitude, right? You know, you see the person suffering, suffering horribly, and they just kind of smile and say, God's good all the time. And you're like, okay, I need to understand what you mean by that, because that sounds like you're insane, right? <laughs> like, it does. Um, and uh, God's goodness is, is hard to comprehend. A.W. Tozer said, the goodness of God is infinitely more wonderful than we will ever be able to comprehend. What are Christians saying when we say that God is good? Well, to understand the tasks, to understand that God is good, we need to understand what we're not doing. What we're not doing is pulling out a cosmic metaphysical measuring tape of goodness, right? Like that big Home Depot, like, you know, 50 foot tape measure of goodness. And we're just going to hold that up to God. Okay. Yep. Hold still. Hold still. Like, no. Have you ever stopped to think why we even have a concept of goodness? In our culture in particular, where everybody, where you are, it's completely up to you as an individual to determine what's good in life. Why do we even have a concept of universal goodness? If there isn't a God behind that. I just gave you, by the way, the the cliff notes to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. If you really want to tease into that more, read that book. It's so good on this. But this idea of a uniform definition of goodness does not come from society or human beings. It comes because God made us in his image. William Tyndale, the great Bible translator who translated the Bible into English and died at the, burned at the stake for it, he said, God's goodness is the root of all goodness. Mark 10, 18, Jesus is confronted. He says, a rabbi looks at him and says, good teacher, and asks him a question. And he goes, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, God alone. So Jesus himself is affirming there is no good in the universe apart from God. There is no measurement of goodness apart from who God is. To try to define this and land on this a little more, uh, Kevin DeYoung says, if glory is the weight and worth of God, then goodness is the blessing and bounty of God. Jen Wilkin defines God's goodness as his utter benevolence, the complete absence of malice. You ever heard, met somebody or talked to somebody and you're like, oh, you need to meet so-and-so. They're the nicest person in the world, right? I mean, literally, God is the goodest person <laughs> in the world, right? Like, he is always kind, always benevolent. There is never an underhanded scheme. There is never lying. There is never a dishonesty or an attempt to manipulate. God is good in his essence, we see this in a few ways through scripture. And the first one we see is in his creation. We see God's goodness reflected in creation. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So creation, at its best, is a reflection of God's goodness, which is why, by the way, uh, filling our oceans with plastics is not good. It's bad, because we are taking something beautiful that's meant to inspire us and remind us of God's goodness and greatness, and we are polluting it. So that's one reason 
I'm not saying that we are one with the world and we are one with the rocks and the trees and the bushes or whatever. I'm saying that as Christians being made into God's image, we are to be good as well, which means be good stewards of God's good creation. God delights in his creation. It was a joy for him to make it and it reflects his goodness. The other, a second way we see his goodness is it's revealed in his love for his people. First Chronicles 16.34 says, this is a refrain, by the way, about half a dozen times in the Old Testament. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Actually, that second phrase gets used all over the place in the Old Testament. But one place that this phrase, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever, is actually a very weird psalm, Psalm 136, which is one of these psalms that was actually meant to be a, 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 a liturgy. It was written as a liturgy for the people, and the leader would read the uh, first verse, give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then the rest of the verses are, are the leader describing something that reflects God's goodness. And then the echo is the people saying, for his steadfast love endures forever. Every single verse. And you know what he accounts? You know what the author accounts as he as he. Uh, walks, uh, wrote this psalm, he writes Israel's history. He starts with creation, but then he starts in through Israel's history about how God had been good to his people for his steadfast love endures forever. So God is good. His goodness is revealed among his people. And then finally here, we, and most importantly, his goodness is perfect, perfectly manifested in Jesus. If God is good, right, we're, we're saying God is the essence of good, and Jesus Christ was God in human form, fully revealing the Father to human beings, then Jesus Christ was quite literally good in human form. He was God's goodness walking around us. We see this. Don't you see this in his life? Just... just Forget, we'll get to the cross and resurrection in a second, but just look at the way Jesus lived, how he loved, how he cared for people, how he spoke both to religious leaders, the powerful, but he also sought out the poor and the outcast. How tender and merciful and kind and considerate. He was God's goodness in human form. But most importantly, the cross and the resurrection. Because on the cross and the resurrection, God showed his ultimate benevolence towards us by Jesus dying to pay the price for my sin and your sin. So we would never have to try to earn his goodness is even a gift of his goodness, right? So it's, it's crazy to think about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us is God's goodness to us so that we can be brought into God's goodness, which is why, by the way, we will be reveling in the cross through eternity. We'll be, walking, we'll be walking around with Jesus, seeing his nail-scarred hands and feet, and we're just going to be reminded of his goodness for us, to us. The cross is the ground zero of the goodness of God in this world. It is where every bit of his goodness comes to us. The crazy thing is it not only comes to us, but if Jesus, again, follow me, God is good. Jesus was good, was God in human form, or goodness in human form. And then Jesus sends the spirit among us to be in us. 
then through the cross, what actually happens is the goodness of God comes to dwell in you, inside you, and with you. This is the God who, if you'll listen, will speak into your heart. You are loved. You are valuable. You matter to me. If we don't crowd out it with other voices and we don't constantly look for other people to give us validation and worth, if we will listen to that voice of the Spirit, we will hear, hear the Father in his goodness cry out to us. You're loved. He's a good father, by the way. And when you struggle, when you fail, which we do, right? It's part of the reason we read, read the liturgy a little while ago is that we, we do. We continue to struggle and fail. But what is the, what is the difference here? If, if, if I'm really experiencing God's goodness and I fail, what does that do in me? If I'm not living in God's goodness, I'll tell you what it does. It creates shame, creates fear, and it makes you want to hide out and or earn your place back with God. And let me tell you what that looks like as an analogy. It's, and, and how bad it makes God look, if that's who he is. That he's like, you know, you did, you blew it this week. I want you to at least feel bad for a couple of weeks. This was a bad one, buddy. Like you need to, you need to walk around kind of miserable. I want you to um, be really sad. And, uh, and then maybe, maybe we'll, we'll talk. It's like a parent with like a six-year-old child and this little boy, you know, he, he breaks a rule, family rule, very clear rule, been explained a thousand times, breaks it anyway. And, and the father looks at him and says, okay, buddy, you're, you're going to need to wash the car. You're going to need to eat at a little table in the corner each night for the next couple of weeks. And then afterwards, we'll see if we can get you back, back to, to, to hang out. No, what does a good father do? He doesn't dismiss what his son did, but he never wants it to be a break in the relationship. He wants that child to come and say, father, I I blew it. I trust in your mercy and your kindness and your love for me. Will you forgive me? That's what a father delights in. That's what our father delights in. But how do you respond? So why don't we experience God's goodness? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that because it's in my notes. How can God be so good if the world is so bad? There's so much bad in it. And I hear that question sometimes from people who, uh, who have been genuine, experienced genuine, horrible suffering. Uh, but sometimes it is lobbed like a Molotov cocktail towards Christianity as if it is the, you know, just going to implode all of Christianity. But let me just make a very simple observation. If that's, if that's what brings down Christianity, it's pretty pathetic, number one. Number two, um, the person who lobs that Molotov cocktail still has to deal with suffering. They still have to deal with bad in the world. They just have a different system of thinking about it. And let me take you down that secularist's road. There's no God. You are meat. You are a highly evolved animal. And if your child dies of cancer at five, nature has selected them to not survive and pass on their genes. Hope they enjoyed their time. That is not satisfying to our souls, is it? There's something inherent in us that says, it can't be that. That can't be all there is. My suffering can't be meaningless and purposeless and hopeless. In fact, the only purpose it would serve is is survival of the fittest and natural selection. 
But if there is a God and there is suffering in this world, then we can begin to wrestle through that. The truth is Christianity doesn't have simple answers. This isn't a plug and play, plug in your experience and what you're going through into the formula and the formula will produce a result, an answer for you that will make complete sense of why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. No. God does not give us a formula to make sense of suffering. He gives us himself. That's the difference. And you will not find another God in the, in the world, at least any world religions, I've, any major world religion, maybe there's some one out there that I've never heard of, who suffered like a person, as a person. So when you are suffering, you are not alone. So we don't experience maybe the goodness of God because there is suffering in this world, but we can experience the good of God through suffering if we are looking to him. So why, why does suffering exist at all? Why do we not experience this goodness? Well, very simply, and this should be on the screen, we reject God as good and define goodness apart from him. That's what Adam and Eve did. Literally, Genesis 3, 6 says, when, so when the woman saw the tree, the tree of knowledge that God had forbidden, was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, another, nice, another way of saying it was good, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, which is another way of saying it was good, she took of it and ate of it. Now, God, don't miss this, God had already declared creation to be what? Very good. But Adam and Eve chose to, def- to believe, no, God's definition of good is not good. I will define good for me. That's the nature of every sin you commit and every sin that I commit. And one of the ways we do this, cut ourselves off from God's goodness, is when we are not walking in him and his goodness to us, we look to other people to be our good. I would argue, ultimately, we're not satisfied unless we have some good from people, right? Like, like God himself, if, if God as our ultimate good that we were made to have and personal good, relational good, Right? Cut off from that, what am I going to do except seek that from other people? Think about who you want most, uh, you most want approval from. Who are they? How does it make you feel if you might never get their approval? For some of you, that's your parents, and I'm sorry. Because I, I just described to you, that's not loving, that's not a, a loving parent. If they've ever made you feel like you have to achieve or succeed or earn their approval, because God is not like that. Or flip it around, what would it be like for you to find the person who does approve you and then to find out they think you're incompetent or not very smart? Or they just really don't like you? What does that do in your soul? I'm not saying it shouldn't matter. I'm not saying that you should go to work tomorrow and email your boss and say, I no longer consider your approval to be anything in my life. You know, like, <laughs> that's not good, right? <laughs> you won't, you'll find them not working for that person very long. Uh, but it's the fact that we take those little things that we do, that it's good. It's good to seek your boss's approval that you do a good job. That's, that's okay. It's an inordinate desire for that, where we get in trouble 
where I'm basing my peace, my joy, my happiness, my good in life is based on their assessment of me. If you don't believe you're doing this, here's, here's a question for you. How many, how many Christians, um, I see a lot of Christians pulling back from living for God's approval in one very simple way when it comes to not telling others about Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about your first day at your job. I'm not talking about when you sit down on the bus next to someone, unless the Spirit speaks to you, and, sh- and, and I believe he does sometimes, tell us to go talk to that stranger. I've had those conversations before, and it was very clear that Spirit was at work. So listen to the Spirit. But I'm talking about the friend you have that knows you, knows you're a Christian, knows you're a committed Christian, and they respect you in some ways as a person, and you have refused to ever cross the line because you're afraid they might not like you. They might not think you're smart anymore if you actually start explaining what the gospel is to them. They're going to think I'm a dummy. They're going to think I'm weird. Well, we are weird. I have felt it in my soul, and if, if I have, I'm thinking you probably have. Because I get to talk about Jesus for a living. So, but there's times I'm just like, do I want to cross this with this person? And I'm not really worried about them. Oh, we use the excuse, well, I just don't want to turn them off to God. And the truth is, we're just saying we don't want them to turn them off to us. Do you notice how Jesus never seemed concerned about that? He always loved the person more than how he felt about that, that person loving him. He was always more interested in loving them and serving them than he was getting them to like him. At the point that we do that, we are driven by fear of man, not faith in God. This living for approval of others shows up in, in, in these characteristics. You can see them on the screen. Fear of disappointing others, avoidance of confrontation, an inability to say no when somebody asks you for help, difficult taking off, you need to be needed, you have a doubt of other people's actual love for you, you have anxiety when someone doesn't like you, you struggle to share your needs because then, oh, forget, Lord, forgive me that I would ever actually ask them to do something for me because then they really might not like me. So you have a hard time sharing your own needs. Preaching to myself on that one. I'm not immune to these insecurities and uh, in, in this need. I, um, it's weird. I, I didn't graduate from high school on time. If you're new, I flunked seven classes in high school, including my senior English class, which turns out you're supposed to pass in order to graduate. Um, so, I, so I didn't graduate with my class. I had to go to summer school. I, I left for college, a small, tiny college, accepting anyone with a pulse at the time, uh, three days after I graduated high school at the end of the summer. Um, yes, it was as much fun as it sounds uh, to go to summer school after your senior year and after all your friends graduate. Uh, but What's funny is I had like insecurities about that when I got into college and for years, for a couple of decades, I had some insecurities about that. So I felt like I needed to make people know uh, that, that I'm capable, right? Or that I was smart or to, 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 on the flip side, to never look dumb, to never, you know, appear, uh, you know, somehow less than what I wanted. As the you know, and even as a pastor that carried over into finding, I really wanted uh, to impress other pastors and leaders. I wanted, especially I'd meet some new pastor or an older pastor or somebody of significant 
church or an author or something, and I'd want, them, I'd, I'd want to impress them. I'd want them to approve me. And the sad thing is, I realized this. I was least myself in those moments. I was least who I actually, God saved me to be and created me to be. I am a facade of my real personality because I could not be who I am around them. I could only be what I thought they wanted. I could only be what I thought would earn their approval. And I remove myself from resting and rejoicing in God's goodness to me to try to get a tiny morsel of approval from a broken human being. What a sad place to be. So that's why we're not experiencing God's goodness. <laughs> Let's talk about how, what does it look like then to live in God's goodness? The only way to chase out that uh, fear of man or that approval idol in your heart is to rest in the approval of a good and loving God. He, um, when we look to other people and telling them to be our good, we can't look to God and, and rest in his goodness. We see a contrast of, at least in an experience, I'm not classifying entire lives, but in an experience of, um, in Jesus's ministry. In Luke 8, uh, 10, 38 through 42, we read about Mary and Martha who were sisters and they had a brother named Lazarus. And outside of the disciples, they appear more, as much or more than anyone. And Jesus often spent time at their home uh, they were probably very rad- they were probably wealthy, um, and their parents were probably dead and had left them the money, and they were radically generous and kind with, with Jesus, and he was maybe their closest friends outside of the disciples. Um, and on one occasion, he's at their home, and this is what it says, verse 38, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha was worried and bothered because these people were in her home and she wanted to make sure that they had a good experience, right? Um, and she was distracted. She wanted to make sure everyone approved of her, approved of the way she served everyone. The word distracted here in verse 40 is, implies the attention was drawn away by the burden of her duties. Jesus didn't say to Martha, you know what? You're right. You get, Mary, you get up and you go help your sister right now. She is doing this all by herself. He doesn't. He calls to her, Martha, Martha, which is not, Jesus wasn't like, Martha, Martha, like, like that. Like, he repeated her name. He's talking to her. When someone repeats your name twice, either you're in huge trouble, or it is, in this case, in Jesus's ministry, he always repeated it as a, as a sign of tenderness to them. He had compassion on her. He wasn't judging her in terms of, he wasn't angry. He tenderly shows affection to her. Martha, Martha, you're missing. You're trying to be superwoman for everybody, but your sister has chosen to see the good in this room is me. The ultimate good in this room is me, and I'm not going to take that away from her. How many of us are Martha? Busy, busy, busy with making sure everyone is, is satisfied around us. 
busy, busy, busy trying to appease our boss or supervisor, whoever that might be, our professor, our parents, instead of stopping and realizing God's goodness to us is enough. One thing is necessary, the good portion. I wonder if, I, I wonder if this morning you could just imagine Jesus calling your name like you would me, Bland, Bland, just to grab my attention and say, you are too distracted with trying to impress too many people. You need to be with me. You need to sit at my feet. You need to know I am good. Jesus is the ultimate good that we all need. As I shared, my insecurities hit me most of my life, or adult life, around uh, my past and what I had experienced rather than really rejoicing in what God had done, which I did. I'm not saying I didn't ever do that. I just felt at times insecurity around people uh, about that. That really shifted a number of years ago. Um, by the way, I still share that story about my high school experience. If you've been around Coa for a while, you're like, I know I've heard it. I could probably tell it better than you. Um, <laughs> I've told it, and one of the reasons I do it is because I just want to make sure I root out any insecurities I have and be reminded of God's goodness to me. But uh, for those of you that are new, um, when we planted this church, we, we started our core, core team meetings in 2009, actually the fall of 2009, like September, we started meeting and, uh, you know, fall, new growth, people showing up, right? We were blowing up. We were like 25 or 30 at this point. Um, our community groups had, had doubled from one to two uh, the previous semester. Like, we were, we were ready. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was a good fall. Things were going well. But it, was, it got about six weeks in. It was October 13th. It was a Tuesday night of 2009. And I went to bed, just like you will tonight. Um, and somewhere in the middle of the night, uh, or about an hour after I went to sleep, I had a uh, sudden cardiac arrest. And my heart stopped. And my wife, fortunately, she, uh, she and my nephew, who was living with us at the time, he, they got me on the floor. She started doing CPR. Uh, he went and called 911. Uh, my oldest daughter, Hannah, ran next door. to try. He was a fireman that lived next door, trying to get him to come over and he could do CPR. And uh, the best we can tell, I went around eight minutes. Somewhere around six, brain damage begins to set in um, with the brain starved of oxygen. And uh, I went around eight minutes. They took me to... Hit, uh, a policeman arrived, hit me with a defibrillator. A couple minutes later, an EMT arrived, hit me again, got my heart back into a decent sinus rhythm, and they took me to um, Tufts Medical Center where I was in a medical coma for two and a half days. They did not know if I would wake up. They, they didn't know if I woke up how, you know, would I be a different person. Um, so I tell people the good news is uh, I, when I woke up, I had no more brain damage than I had before. So... Um, <laughs> So no increase. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I wake up and the doctor looks at me and he says, uh, you know, healthy 37-year-olds don't have a sudden cardiac arrest. We're going to run some tests. We're going to figure out what happened. And, um, I, and I just remember peace coming over me in that moment. Uh, there's several things I remember from the nine days that I spent in the hospital. Um, I actually felt like a, uh, like a 90-year-old guy. I was getting a heart catheterization, MRI, electrophysiology, uh, echocardiograms, every kind of heart test they could run. Um, and they actually, by God's grace, they never found anything. 
They have no, there's no underlying cause that they've ever been able to figure out. They think it's genetic, but haven't gone through that genetic testing yet. Um, but I have a defibrillator in my chest. I tell people I'm bionic now, or I'm a cyborg. Um, so trying to get Wi-Fi when they upgrade it next time. I want to have like my own hotspot um, <laughs> wherever I go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but one of the things the Lord did in me and through me, uh, through me in that experience, actually, and, and I, I, someday I'll tell you what it did with our little core group. The, it, the Lord used that in a way I couldn't even imagine. Horrible suffering, difficult suffering. Even Teresa and I today would stand before you and say, we're grateful for that experience. We're grateful for what the Lord brought us through. Um, but one of the things he did was he kind of freed me up from some insecurities in the sense of like God going like, I don't need you. I can get this thing done in Boston without you. I'm going to let you hang around. I'm going to let you be a part of this. And I don't believe City on the Hill would have planted seven churches because I would have needed people to approve of me so much, I would have just kept saying, no, we got to reach 350. We got to reach 400. Let's, you know, maybe if we reach 500, then we'll be ready to plant a church. But by God's grace, he helped me to be able to, uh, for the church to be able to plant seven churches and give away 100, I think it's like 170 people. Helped me to like spend time investing and and coaching other church planters around the city. And I don't share that to boast. I share that, that God had to kill some things in me to free me up from my need to be approved by others. And I'm here to tell you, it's good. It's good to find God is good. It's so satisfying to your soul. It frees you up. Here's the thing. I don't believe you can actually love others like Jesus until you have understood God's goodness and love to you. Because you will always need something from other people to keep you going. But I think the greatest Christians in human history that have been able to go leverage their lives where there's no fruit and just little fruit and lots of persecution, things like that, it's because they know the goodness of God in their heart. And that's enough. And then that frees them to be able to live sacrificially. God is good, so you do not need to seek approval from others. We're going to move into our time of response. And um, if you're new, we celebrate communion each week as a church, just as a physical reminder Jesus set up to remind us of his, his death, the, the bread being his body broken for us, his, um, the cup being his blood poured out for us. And as you, we would take the bread and we would take the cup, we were reminded of what he's done for us. It is quite literally a physical symbol of the goodness of God to you. And so I want to encourage you, if you do struggle you struggle with like wanting that person or this person to be impressed by you. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't have no desires about other people. I'm simply saying you recognize in your own heart that person has replaced God some for you. Would you just take time to repent of that now? Turn away from that and take communion as God's goodness to you. What Jesus has done for you. And if you're not a Christian, you don't know where you stand with Jesus, today, this message is for you to invite you into the goodness of God. Communion is for those who have crossed that threshold, who identify as Christian, who could tell someone else what Jesus has done for them. And so if you're not a Christian, we'd ask you to not take communion. Um, we, we want to see help you cross that threshold and, and have that relationship with Christ and experience his goodness and then take it. 
Um, if you are a Christian, anytime over this next song, there'll be communion stations around. You can just make your way up, take that. You can take it back to your seat and just take it whenever you're ready. Let's go ahead and stand. I'm gonna pray and then we can close. Uh, we can respond together. Father, you truly are good and you do good. But Lord, this world veils that goodness at times. Our sin veils that goodness at times. Our struggles, our suffering veil that goodness. I pray that just even right now, your goodness would, would fill us, would meet us, would set us free from idols of approval, would give us the joy of an infinite God's approval. Give us the joy of a heavenly father who will never forsake us, whose approval wasn't earned and cannot be taken away. As we take the bread and the cup, we are reminded, Jesus, that you have done that. It is finished. There is nothing to add. We can only take in joy. I pray we would do that today, knowing a heavenly Father invites us to this table. Enjoy. In your name we pray.